All right. Daniel's in here. Uh, our episode this month lightly covers some racially sensitive topics, and Daniel took that as a blank check tip. I can't even, I mean, where did that come from? I can't even explain how offensive an intro he wants to do. He still thinks we're doing it. I'm hiding out recording this right now because I just can't let that happen. If we went through with that, it'd be the end of Ali Meekly. It's that simple. Uh, okay, so our episode this month is about the history of Boyle Heights and how it went from being a mostly Jewish neighborhood to a mostly Mexican neighborhood. And all I needed to say was Jewish and Mexican. And he was like like the Manchurian candidate, like something awoke in him. And I don't know what happened. I didn't know he had it in him. Like you'd think he'd have more respect for his own heritage, but my God, it was like watching a Rottweiler eat his own mother. He told our friends about it at dinner and they threw up. The waiter flipped the table over. I mean, I know he voted for Trump, but it's like, it's like he's been waiting for this. So I'm on my own right now, and Daniel doesn't know I'm here. He doesn't know where I am. I left a cardboard cutout of Frankie Muniz in his bathtub, so let's let's just say he's preoccupied. All right, so uh, intro. How do we usually do this? Um, Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, Back to the Future, done. Oh, no. I thought, I thought it covered my tracks. How did he... The lights! Gotta turn the lights on. His vision's based on movement. If I stay still, he might just pass me by. I think he's gone. Hola, amigo! I told you no! Your mouth says chili rie no, but your heart says chili rie yes! Put that so far down, Daniel! Don't you dare! I will pull the plug! God help me, I will pull the plug! Say shalom to my little f- Show tunes. <laughs> Welcome to the show tunes. Hooray for show tunes. Why do uh, we this sing is not, at the beginning uh, of it? Because we blank. We blank and all we know, all we are made up of all, is songs. All we can do is sing. <laughs> when we get frightened. <laughs> sing uh, the scares away. Goodbye. So welcome to episode 41. This is 41. Is that joke over now? Can we not do it anymore? It counts for all of the 40s. <laughs> 41. What happened in 1941? Nothing. 41 gigawatts. It's, no, it's not 41 gigawatts. <laughs> yeah, 41. That's what it is. That would have killed him. That would have killed them all. That would have sent him so far back in time, there wouldn't even be a guitar solo for that. You might notice my voice sounds a little different. How? Did you? Oh, you're a little boy. You're a little man now. I'm 41 now. <laughs> I grew up man. overnight. I got my tonsils removed. <laughs> I got my tonsils replaced. And I ate so much ice cream it made me sick, which is what I am. I'm sick. This episode, we're going to talk about the history of Boyle Heights, in particular, the Jewish community that lived there and the Mexican community that it's most likely known for. That lives there. That, that currently <laughs> lives there. It's a really, it was very interesting. I've, I've always really been interested in Boyle Heights, and I knew there was a deep history there, and I'm delving into it, I was very interested. Yeah. Uh, you're a gentrifier. Okay. I just want to put bakeries everywhere. <laughs> they have bakeries. They're called pandorias. <laughs> but in English. <laughs> Isn't there a way you could double the price on everything and have white people make it? That's cool. Why don't we do that? We'll, we'll do that. <laughs> as if white people make anything. <laughs> yeah, they make complaint phone calls. 
and crank phone calls. That's what we're best at. Rascals. <laughs> we're the intangibles. <laughs> like so, tax breaks. Intangible. Now you're not that class though. You're lower you're a lower class. Hey. Come on. Stop. Come on. I, I own a watch. <laughs> I have a, a, a wristwatch. It's not in my pocket or on a the factory floor. I pay everything with gold just like everybody else. <laughs> I put my pants on one servant helper at a time. <laughs> That's how I do it. And I put on my belt made out of yak. Just another day walking around in alligator shoes. All right, you're going to start us off today? Yeah. Please. Oh, you don't want to go further about my wardrobe? <laughs> you, want, you don't want to hear about what my underwear is made out of? <laughs> I don't wear it. Rich people don't do that. Most of the things we talk about are kind of like, well, that's kind of done and here's some remnants, but this seems, I mean, this my, my living, part. Yeah. Part of it's living. Yeah, part, part of, of it is a very living sister. thing that needs it's to be. Sistery. I got to go to church. Herstory, <laughs> sistery. Why didn't they ever say sistery? That makes way more sense. Sistery. Why didn't the feminists jump on that? Not everyone has sisters, but everyone is a her. <laughs> I've been trying to tell my parents this. <laughs> Sure, I don't have sisters, but I am my own sister. <laughs> what were you saying about the sistery being? It's still, it's still very active. Yeah, end, I, it, yeah I, I have some stuff on that. It's very, it's a very active thing that we c- needs to be addressed, undressed. Like my <gasps> sister. No, <laughs> what's her story? Go on. <laughs> so uh, that's my sick voice. So here we go. It's like Tom Waits turning into a, Marge a Simpson. Mule. Yeah, it's turning into the mule. One of the donkeys from Pinocchio. That little kid is Tom Waits, and he becomes <laughs> the donkey, and that donkey is full Tom Waits. It's like it's watching Tom Waits grow up. Anyways, Pinocchio colon the Tom Waits story. <laughs> I'll start us out. I'm going to be talking about obviously, yeah, obviously the, Ju- the Jewish part of the story. I'm glad Greg that insisted. You- he threw me in the sandbox and he said, you're talking about the Jewish part. I'm glad that you said it. I almost wanted to make it so that I do the Mexican part and you do the Jewish Halfway part. Halfway through of my thing, I was like, why didn't I do the Jewish people? I know. That would have made it more sense. I already know most of this stuff. <laughs> I just didn't want you to mispronounce the word yarmulke. 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 Is that it? I think I said it right. Uh, it's a yarmulke. I'll just get us started. Okay. The Jews. <laughs> Ow. That hurt my chest. The Jews. I gotta go. This is not my scene, man. <laughs> this episode isn't for the faint of heart or people who have hearts so the jews first came to los angeles in 1841 get used to that word we're here we're jews we're jews where can i sit (laughs) what's the big deal so the jews first came to los angeles in 1841 in the form of jacob frankfurt jacob frankfurt well that's a dude it's not a town no they they didn't all we didn't all come from one we didn't spew out of the earth the the earth Jacob Frankfurt, he came to LA via Santa Fe, New Mexico, via Germany. Germany. Mm. He lived in the Alexander Bell House, not the Bell House from the Bell episode, and not a Bell House from a Quasimodo story. And he worked as a tailor in the Bell's Row building on the southeast corner of Aliso in Los Angeles in the plaza. For a few short years, he enjoyed what must have been brutal, relentless discrimination, being the only Jewish person in all of Los Angeles. But by 1850, the gold rush was in full bloom, and with that brought a few more Jews to the California to the California. What's going on here? I wrote this when I had a hundred degree fever. Yeah, This is clearly NyQuil language. (laughs) More Jews were coming to California during the gold rush, mostly not coming on the off chance of finding gold, but rather for the sure thing of opening up stores to sell things that the gold miners needed, like Levi Strauss. Wait, really? (laughs) Yeah, we sold Levi Strauss. Yeah, he came during the gold rush selling like denim and stuff like that to people mining for denim. They were looking for (laughs) it. He had it all. The great denim mines of... I need that something that hugs my bottoms. This flippy flap on my prospector outfit is just not doing it. I need something I can really soil into. Something that the poop's going to really get ingrained into. <laughs> something that no matter how many times you wash it, it's just part of the pants now. I mean, when it gets wet, it's like wearing a shelf or something. It's the heaviest thing. It's just so heavy. <laughs> it's, like, it's like that chocolate 
syrup that hardens when you pour it onto ice cream. <laughs> this is disgusting. So by 1850, the population of Los Angeles was 8,624, and there were now a whopping eight Jewish people in Los what? Angeles. They were Grandpappy Jacob Frankfurt, mm-hmm. Abraham Jacoby, Philip Cycle, Morris Michaels, Morris L. Goodman, who was one of the seven on the first Common Council of Los Angeles oh, okay. in 1850, and he helped found the first local chapters of the Freemasons and the International Order of Odd Fellows. And all the conspiracies come from that. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I have a feeling I'm going to hear about more of that. Uh, Not really. Sort of, a little bit. Side podcast That'll be our uh, white power podcast. (laughs) White podcast, we call it. (laughs) White podcast. After that was Augustine Wasserman and then Felix Bachman and Joseph Plummer. Six of these guys were German, two of them were Polish. Aside from the Taylor Frankfurt, they were all merchants and all of them lived and worked in the Bell's Row building. So they were all there. Then in the next few years, some more started trickling in. In 1853, Samuel and Joseph Labatt came to LA from the original LA, Louisiana, no. New Orleans. No, Louisiana. It's NyQuil brain. I ate gumbo at <laughs> Disneyland, so I should know this. <laughs> they came from Louisiana, making them the first native-born Jewish Americans to live in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Then came Joseph Newmark, who in 1854 was the sort of de facto rabbi in town. He was conducting religious services and whatever rooms he could rent, mm-hmm. which seems to be the, the trend for any organization yeah. in the old days of Los Angeles. Hamburger Plaza! <laughs> Wait till you hear. Oh, boy. Then in July 1854, the Hebrew Benevolent Society was formed to unite the Jewish community in town. It was formed by All eight the, of them? Yeah. <laughs> All eight of them who lived together? <laughs> Let's just not do it here. Uh, there was like 12 at this point. <laughs> it was formed by the New Orleans boy, Samuel Labatt, and then Solomon Nunez Carvalho, who came here in 1853 as the official artist and photographer on John C. Fremont's last expedition to California. You'll remember mm-hmm. him from, I think, from the uh, Los Angeles Year One episode. I think we talk about yeah. it a little bit. There's a plaque to him at the Campo de Coenga, so I assume we talked yeah, about I'm him. Yeah, I'm sure we raised him at least. So this Hebrew Benevolent Society, this was the first charitable organization in Los Angeles. And in 1855, they bought three acres of land at Lookout Drive and Lilac Terrace in Chavez Ravine mm-hmm. for a dollar what? and built the Hebrew Benevolent Society Cemetery, which was the first Jewish cemetery in the city. And now they play ball all over it. When I did the research for Chavez Ravine, I remember them talking about a cemetery. And, like, and you didn't seem to care about it then, but hmm. we made a joke about it. It's nice of you to woke. It's nice of you to woke. So now with a good place to die set up, the Jewish community could start to grow. In 1861, Joseph Newmark started the first Jewish congregation in LA, Beth L. Beth L. That's what it is. Bethel, which was quickly replaced in 1862 with B'nai B'rith in the city's first temple, of course, at Temple on Broadway, mm, or on Fort between 2nd and 3rd. I saw both. I don't know which one it was, but it was the same place pretty much in those days. I, uh, ev- <laughs> take that pass. <laughs> Eventually, in 1873, they moved to its current location, 3663 Wilshire Boulevard, where it is now known as Wilshire Boulevard Temple, and it's the oldest one in the city. Okay. The regular rabbi there was Abraham Wolf Edelman, who became the first full-time rabbi in the city in 1862. He spoke Spanish, so the Mexicans all called him Padre. Uh, that's pretty cool. By 1870, there were only 330 Jewish people in the city, but they were making their impact felt. In 1862, of the five members of the LA Board of Supervisors were Jewish, Goodman from before, and Julius Morris. In 1870, Emil Harris was one of six Los Angeles police officers. You might remember him. He was one of the ones who tried to protect the Chinese during the Chinatown Massacre in oh, 1871. Wow. He also led the posse that captured 
Tiburcio Vasquez really? in 1874. Then in 1878, he became the first Jewish chief of police in Los Angeles and maybe the last. <laughs> John Jones became the first LA City Council president in 1871. Mm-hmm. Joseph Newmark's son, Harris Newmark, was a good friend of Charles Lummis and helped found the Los Angeles Public Library uh-huh. in addition to owning the Temple Block where one of the original courthouses were from our last episode. Uh-huh. He also owned Santa Anita Ranch and sold it to one of several Lucky Baldwins a little <laughs> after 1872. He also owned Rapetto Ranch, which is where Tiburcio Vasquez hid out for a while, and he was also instrumental in persuading Pacific Railroad to come to Los Angeles. Listen to all those episodes, I know. and then well, get back to me. There's more. Al Levy, creator of the Oyster Cocktail, was Jewish. Isaac Lankershim was oh, Jewish. Wow. The Hamburger Department Store yes. was owned by the very Jewish Osher Hamburger. No okay. cheese. No cheese. Not kosher. Can't eat it. Can't do it. Sorry. Sorry. You're bathing the babe in the milk of its mother. Can't do it. But sure, buy some pants. <laughs> Max Myberg, owner of the Crystal Palace and creator of the Fiesta de Los Angeles, was Jewish, and he was married to the daughter of another Jewish man, Isaiah Hellman, who owned the Farmers and Merchants Bank, which was a descendant of the bank that Tiburcio Vasquez had robbed. Hellman also helped found USC and lent the money to Harrison Gray Otis that he used to buy the LA Times that eventually got bombed. He also loaned a lot of money to Edward Doheny to drill for oil to make his fortune. So everything <laughs> that Los Angeles was known for before 1950, he had his hands in. Pretty much. Basically. The fingerprints of... He also made a bunch of movies. <laughs> he was also Cecil B. Demille, <laughs> and he killed Bela Lugosi. There was, he's heroin. There was also Louis Lewin and Charles Jacoby who formed the Pioneer Lot Association, which would go on to help create a little area known as Boyle Heights. Stepping back from that, though. In 1881, Tsar Alexander II was assassinated in Russia, so the Russians blamed the Jews and started genociding them, so a bunch of them fled the country. So a huge wave of them came to America and many of those came out to Los Angeles. So in 1900, the population of LA was 102,000 and 2,500 of those were Jewish, most of them living downtown centered around Temple Street where the temple was. Where the temple at? (laughs) Temple Street. The age-old question. It's it's a very easy question to answer. But the city was starting to expand, and space was opening up elsewhere than cramped, smelly downtown. Across the... Hey! It's not cramped. (laughs) Across the also smelly river from downtown was an area where over 13,000 years ago, pre-Shumash people had lived until around 3,500 years ago when the Keech arrived, eventually being pushed out and otherwise annihilated by the Spanish until they got kicked out by the Mexicans until 1850 when they were taken over by the Americans. Since 1781, this area was known as Paradon Blanco, meaning white bluffs. Those things I tell to get out of trouble all the time. (laughs) This area of land stretched from the San Gabriel Mission on the north, Mm -hmm. El Camino Real on the south, the LA River on the west, and the Rio Hondo on the east, and was owned by our old friends, the Lugo family, the powerful family that William Wolfskill married into. Mm. Fingerprints everywhere. Everywhere. The Jew. (laughs) Conspiracy Uh, continues. White podcast. (laughs) White podcast. Um... Oh, God, my voice. Is anyone finding this sexy? Yeah, no, I'm turning <clears> on right now. Oh, yeah, that was it. That's the button there. I pooped Please, a little. Uh, my Levi's are stained. Um, I'm magic shelling. I do believe I just bought these denim, if you know what I mean. <laughs> the tag has been removed. <laughs> I cannot return these anymore. <laughs> but in the 1850s, an Irish immigrant named Andrew Boyle bought 22 acres of that land who sold it out to some settlers, but nothing much was done with it until he died in 1871, and it was inherited by his son-in-law, William H. Warren of the bank that Vasquez robbed. That's right. He was also part owner of Turnbull Canyon and a million other things we've mentioned him being a part of in this podcast that I'm too sick to have listed. He started to divide up the land for development to accommodate the growth spurt that the city was going
going through. These areas became known as East Los Angeles, which was modeled after a grand European city and in memory of his father-in-law, Boyle Heights. Mm. Don't confuse that with the current East LA because East Los Angeles got rebranded in March 1917 and renamed after their local school, Abraham Lincoln High School, and became Lincoln Heights. Mm, I usually talk to people, hangers on of (laughs) LA about like, oh, we're going to do this. Do you have anything to say? And everyone's like, Boyle Heights is in East LA. I'm like, okay. Yeah, I know. That's what I kept like. I was looking like Jews in East Los Angeles. You mean Boyle Heights. (laughs) It's not all East Los Angeles. It's the East Side. Yeah, it's East Side. It's East of Los Angeles. It's not East LA. I'm like, okay. (laughs) And apparently there's like people in like uh, Silver Lake and stuff are like, we're in East LA, man. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm in Sherman Oaks. I do live in East LA. (laughs) It's a satellite pocket of East L.A. You're living in the embassy? <laughs> I'm protected under East L.A. law <laughs> in my apartment. Diplomatic immunity! <laughs> so the area that is now East L.A. used to be called Belvedere Gardens mm-hmm. in 1921, but changed to East L.A. Oh. in the 30s. So East L.A. is, like we were saying, it's a place. East Side is that general area that covers 20.66 square miles over Boyle Heights, Lincoln Heights, El Sereno, and East L.A. And don't you forget it, yeah. because someone's going to yell at me again. <laughs> the Brooklyn Land and Building Company Company also developed some of the surrounding area, calling it Brooklyn Heights to try to attract East Coasters to move mm-hmm. there. But confusing East Coast rubes blinded by the sunshine and glare from the oranges when they arrived, that wasn't the only tactic to get people to move east of the river. They also had attractions to try to draw people in, which is always the way to yeah. go. Balloons. Put an ostrich farm. <laughs> so they had things like the Luna Park Zoo mm-hmm. and East Lake Park, which is now Lincoln Park, okay. and was the East Side sister to West Lake Park, which is now MacArthur Park. Okay. So they're they're Sis- I didn't know there was twin sister parks. Yeah, twin parks, it's yeah. sistery. We're talking about history here. <laughs> they also had the California Alligator Farm, where you could ride Billy the Alligator. At Lincoln Park, right? I don't know where it was exactly. I but remember hearing about an alligator park there. Yeah, yeah. It, I could not imagine and also very well imagine yeah. that there was more than one alligator park there. That's the weird thing is like, you said it, it makes no sense. I'm like, oh yeah, there was also like a zoo at the beach on yeah. Venice Boardwalk. So yeah, you know what? Anything's possible, really. Attacked by a bear at the beach. <laughs> Too bad that flying cop wasn't around. <laughs> at this alligator farm you could ride billy the alligator okay. who was the alligator like pretty much any movie City alligator he was the, he was mayor <laughs> any movie between the teens and the 40s with an alligator in it that was billy really? the alligator it's named billy as an anagram of the first letters of the names of all the children he ate <laughs> beth Zaya, <laughs> larry larry <laughs> top half of larry bottom half of larry and Yanni. First of all, my first cat was named Billy because of Billy the Kid. You said Billy was in all the movies, and I got excited. I'm like, I can't think of one movie with an alligator in it. I just got excited at the idea that I can go to a movie and yeah. fight it and watch Billy. I can't name an, a movie with an alligator in it, but I also feel like all movies had an alligator Somehow, yeah. in the 30s, at least. Yeah. We, oh, what do we got? Well, we've got an alligator. If they're on a boat, what's that over there? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Billy, get over here. Yeah, we've got an alligator, and we have a bear at Venice. <laughs> and a bunch of shoes from the dead kids. <laughs> and Larry's shoes. Larry's shoes. You killed me, Larry. You're killing Larry. You've done killed me, comma Larry. <laughs> Quote Larry. Quote Larry. Quote the Larry. Quote Larry. So they sold cheap houses to settlers there, but they reserved the best houses in areas with views from the bluffs, which is why there's a bunch of Victorian mansions in the Mount Pleasant area. But all the alligators and misleading names couldn't change the fact that this area was cut off from the rest 
rest of the city and didn't have good water access. All the water that they had was going to Billy. Keep Billy strong. <laughs> the motto of Boyle Heights. Make Billy strong again. <laughs> so because of that, those restrictions, there is a definite cap on how developed it could get. Mm-hmm. Not until future mayor William Workman inherited the land he did in 1871 did things start to move forward. He convinced the city council to start building bridges, uh, literally, and also pipelines. Oh. Literally. Literally. Also. <laughs> then in 1889, the Los Angeles Cable Railroad opened up the Downey Avenue viaduct that went over the LA River and the Southern Pacific Rail Yard and connected downtown to Lincoln Heights. Mm-hmm. So now the vein was open and people could come flowing into the east side along yeah. with their precious water. Oh, guys, some sort of life force. I don't know. <laughs> Can we block the wind? How do we charge these people for that? Who's in charge of that? Workman? Wolf skill? Well, Billy? Billy? <laughs> Billy? Is it the alligator? <laughs> Who runs things? <laughs> Who's in charge around here? Who runs wind? Billy runs the town. <laughs> You got to feed Billy if you want to talk to Billy. If you want to get any laws passed in Congress, you got to bring a live turkey. You got to make Billy's name longer. You know what I mean? Add a T to that. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Tina. <laughs> Decades later, it became even easier to get there because during the City Beautiful movement between 1909 and 1933, six bridges were built connecting downtown to Boyle Heights alone, which is the area we're going to be focusing on now. Oh, oh how did that happen? Oh, uh, oh, ah. I saw something scary. And <laughs> for context, Boyle Heights nowadays is bordered by the 10 on the north, Olympic on the south, Indiana on the east, and Boyle on the west. So now that this area was easier to get into and out of, it became a habitable place. But what sort of people would live there? The oh. Jews. <laughs> Back to the first sentence. The Let Jews. Start again. White podcast. <laughs> I wonder why people don't like us. What is it about us that people don't like? So the west side of LA was the first urban area of the United States that was set aside to be exclusively residential. Yeah, no, I was going to talk about that. Okay. Oh, uh, well, too late. Got to it first. My fact. Epo. My knowledge. <laughs> I devour my denims. <laughs> you can lick my Levi's. Swallow my stains. Munch on my magic shell, if you know what I mean. Since the west side was exclusively residential, all the factories in town had to be built on the east side. So that drew a lot of the people who worked in those factories to the east side to be closer to work. Those people immigrants. Yeah. So in the late 1800s coming into the east side were a lot of Italians, Germans, French, Russians, American, Ar- Americans, Armenians, mm-hmm. Chinese, Japanese. There was a big Serbian community mm-hmm. for a while and then also African Americans were there. Then in the early 1900s the Jews started coming in. I said it. I, I just wanted you to feel <laughs> that. In the early 1900s the Jews started coming in because like the rest of these minority groups they weren't allowed to live most other places in the city because of restrictive housing covenants. And the 19 teens then brought a huge influx of Jewish residents who were fleeing World War I Europe and were drawn from the East Coast to the booming Los Angeles. So in 1920, there were 20,000 Jews in LA. And by 1930, the population of LA as a whole was 1.2 million and 70,000 were Jewish, with some 35,000 of them living in Boyle Heights. So basically half of the population. Um, actually, that's exactly half of the population. They split up families so that it could be exactly half. We need one more. Send one of your daughters. I don't care. Well, give us Moses. <laughs> you um, split the Alley River. That was just a drought. <laughs> do it, pretend to do it again. <laughs> So let's talk about what this community in Boyle Heights was like. Please. The community was centered on what was known as Brooklyn Avenue. We'll get to what it's now called later. There was also a hub around Wabash Avenue and an enclave a little further north in City Terrace. By the 20s, most of the businesses in the area were Jewish run and Yiddish was as common on the streets as Spanish is. Now, in the early 1900s, a wave of anti-Semitism started rising in LA and this was one wave the LA Jews didn't want to be surfing on and they started getting excluded from a lot. They were wiping out. Wiped out! (laughs) 
So because of this, they were getting excluded from a lot of the organizations that they had helped found years earlier. So in response to that, they started making their own community centers. Mm-hmm. They had the Cleveland Free Loan Society and the Chicago Loan Society to give out loans to people who moved to LA from Cleveland and Chicago. The first Jewish community center in Los Angeles, the Modern Hebrew School and Social Center opened there in 1924. In 1931, the huge menorah center at Wabash and Alma opened. In 1911, the Hebrew Sheltering Association opened at 4th and Boyle, turning into the Jewish home for the aged at 131 South Boyle Avenue in 1916, and still lives on today in Reseda, which freaked me out because the library I work at, a lot of people come in from the like Jewish elderly home, uh-huh. and when I read that, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I know this. I'm reading about myself now. <laughs> Who's this little boy that just walked into the story? Why does he have a microphone? In 1902, the Caspar Cohn Hospital opened up there, which eventually turned into Cedar sinai Not there, but that organization. Oh, I see. The establishment that became City of Hope also started in Jewish Boyle Heights. The original Cantor Bros Delicatessen opened in 1931 at 2323 Brooklyn Avenue. Wow. In 1904, the Talmud Torah School opened there as one of the early religious institutions in the area, but in 1912, it morphed into the big one. At 247 North Breed Street, the $75,000 Breed Street Shul designed by Abram Edelman opened up to house the Talmud Torah of Los Angeles congregation. It was built in the Byzantine revival style and became the centerpiece of Jewish life in Boyle Heights. At its peak, it had 75,000 members, which was the biggest congregation west of Chicago. It was referred to as the Queen of the Shuls. They'd even spent $5,000 to bring in a nationally renowned cantor for the high holiday services. In May 1948, they also became the first place in LA to fly an Israeli flag. If you want to see it in all its glory, you can watch the Yom Kippur scene in The Jazz Singer that was filmed there. Oh, wow. But Greg, where did they go when they died? Where did they go when they died? One of two Jewish cemeteries in Boyle Heights. That's where they go when they die. (laughs) The old cemetery in Chavez Ravine lasted until 1910 when the last of the corpses was moved to the Home of Peace Memorial Park at 4334 Whittier Boulevard, where they now ghost mingle with people like Albert Brooks's dad, Harry Einstein, Carl Lemley, Louis B. Meyer, all three Warner Brothers, and Curly and Shemp of Stooge fame. Wow. Really? Yeah, they're all there. That's a good roundup. That's a good cast of a cemetery. And then there was the not as big of heavy hitter cemetery Mount Zion at 1030 South Downey Road, which is pretty much connected to it. It's right next door. This place opened in 1916 to provide free burials for Jews who didn't have the money to be buried. It wasn't a pretty place, but it got the job of being a hole for dead people done. (laughs) They even had a they had a funeral for a bootlegger who got murdered so nobody was really turned away from there. One story from 1932 was when a guy named Hyman Bobroff went outside the place and shot himself in the head and then as he fell his body flinched and he also shot himself in the heart not historically important but ridiculous weird Weird. amongst the living Jewish people living in Boyle Heights included Eric Garcetti's grandparents and great grandparents Max Factor that's not who his great grandparents are that's different person. Yeah, not the same people. Uh, Mickey Cohen, who is his great-grandparents. Yeah. Mickey Cohen would hang out in the Ebony Room bar and Bugsy Siegel ran rackets out of mm-hmm. the area. Didn't God. he grow up there too? Mickey Cohen? He, uh, yeah, Mickey Cohen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who? Uh, who? <laughs> <laughs> I just said the name, but who is that? Uh, what am I saying? <laughs> Wait, where am I? I took NyQuil and now I'm here. Like I said, this was a mostly immigrant neighborhood, so the Jewish people here weren't the rich ones making movies in Hollywood. Yeah. They were working class, like me. They also weren't orthodox, so they were less religious and much more liberal as most fresh out of Europe Jewish people were. Mm -hmm. And with that liberalism came socialist and communist leanings and with that came a lot of political engagement. Most of the big workers unions, including the garment workers, which 
which we also yeah, another episode. Covered. A lot of the big workers unions, they had headquarters on Brooklyn Avenue because many of their members lived in that area. In 1909, the Workmen's Circle slash Arbeiter Ring, which means worker circle okay. in German, opened, which was a Yiddish cultural center and political organization headquartered inside the Vladik Center in Boyle Heights, which was where most of these unions were formed. In all, there were over 100 coordinating councils, 50 community centers and associations, and tons of social workers operating out of Boyle Heights. So it was like the, the political heart of Los Angeles. A ton of civil rights groups came out of this area at this time, and that's a legacy that's still going strong there. But what really was impressive in Boyle Heights in the first half of the 20th century wasn't just how much the Jewish community flourished, but how diverse the entire area was. Yeah. There were 40 different nationalities living there, which is why it became known as the Ellis Island of Los Angeles. It was incredibly diverse and pretty integrated also, and it seemed from... I didn't read anything bad, except for yeah. the guy shooting himself twice. Oops. I didn't read any negative stories. Jews and Mexicans were going to the same schools, mm-hmm. playing on the same sports teams. There was a lot of sharing of cultures also. Yeah. Cantors was just as popular with the Mexican residents as it was with the Jewish, which is why you still see so many places on the east side selling pastrami. Yeah, it was a thing I never thought of I before. Know, I, I always confused me. Like, what, what, how do they know what pastrami <laughs> is? The hat, which is not in Boyle Heights, I know, but it's just on that side of town. Yeah. You gotta go over that side of your phone. Yeah, it's in Pasadena. It's also in Alhambra. Oh, duh. Oh, 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 I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm eating there right now. I know that. I'm the hat. I'm Carl Hat. I talk like the sorting hat from Harry Potter. I'm the hat. And the Jews and Latinos were, and the Jews and Latinos lived happily Definitely ever, ever after. <laughs> El Fino. The Jews and Latinos were both being discriminated against in the rest of the city, so they started teaming up to fight against that. I sound like I'm on the verge of tears, yeah. but I swear I'm just on the verge of dying. <laughs> it's different. No one will cry. The whole world cries when I cry, though. That's better than me just crying whenever Don Draper cries. Who? You mean Dick Whitley or whatever his name. Dick Whitley. <laughs> what is his name? Dick Whitman. Dick, Dick Whitley. I prefer Dick Whitley. <laughs> he should have stolen another guy's identity. Dick Whitley here. Peggy, I'm Dick Whitley. Peggy, don't tell anyone I'm Peggy, don't tell anyone I'm Dick Whitley. Don, what's your what's your real name? Dick Whitley! Right. Dick Whitley. <laughs> the Jews and the Latinos, they started teaming up to fight against the combined discrimination they were facing. And in 1949, the two groups put all their support behind getting Edward Roybal elected as the first Latino city council member. I swear to God. If what? you step more on my toes... No, go ahead. That's fine. I'll talk about him again. I thought we were talking about Jewish and Latino teamwork. <laughs> and now you're telling me not to step on your toes? How else do you tango? <laughs> Proving again that Jewish people don't know how to dance. <laughs> go ahead. Is that a stereotype? I don't know. I don't think it is. I just like making up my own stereotype. <laughs> Well, Chinese a, people swim too much. Here's a stereotype for you. Greg talks too much. So they got Edward Roybal elected, first Latino city council member. Even though one of the guys he was running against was Jewish, he still got the Jewish vote because the saying was, what's good for Boyle Heights is good for the Jews. So, you know, whatever it took to advance both of these communities was a good thing. By 1940, L.A. had the seventh largest Jewish population in the country and the biggest group in Boyle Heights were Jews, which is why it started being referred to as Los Angeles' Lower East Side. East Side is right, but not East L.A. Different. Lower East L.A. But this diversity wasn't seen as a good thing by everybody. Of course not. Why would it? <laughs> Could you believe racists didn't like it? <laughs> Could uh, you believe that white people didn't like co-mingling of ethnic groups? <laughs> what are they eating? Pastrami there? Pastrami next to a taco shop? That's tacos. <laughs> 
Also, what's pastrami? In 1939, the Federal Housing Authority gave Boyle Heights its lowest possible rating because it was said to be filled with subversive racial elements. This is a process known as redlining, which means that with such a low rating, banks would either not give you or charge you a fortune to get a loan to buy a house in that area. The diversity was seen as a sign of being a bad neighborhood. Around the same time, the African-American population was growing and the panicked white lawmakers focused their attention on how to segregate them, so they passed laws, not explicitly, but basically laws that redefined what white was, to now include Jews and Italians and Irish and Slavs, which before this were seen as other, but now got lumped into the blanket term of regular old whites, Caucasian. Yeah. So on top of that, in 1948, the restrictive housing covenants were ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Get so now a bunch of more parts of the city became available to the newly whitened Jews. <laughs> so between Jewish veterans coming home from World War II wanting to own a home in their old neighborhood of Boyle Heights, but not being able to get a loan because of the redlining and restrictions being lifted on where they could live, it was looking less attractive to live in the old buildings of crowded Boyle Heights mm-hmm. and the calls of the cheap housing in the brand new empty San Fernando Valley were sweeter yeah. than the shofar at the end of Yom Kippur. <laughs> I'll explain that to you one day. Yeah, please do. You should come to the High Holy Holidays. Is that not a meal? Everything I don't know in a different culture, I'm like, is that food? Is that a feast day? (laughs) I'll go for that. What's the funeral where I eat a lot? I'm going to go to that. Wolfgang Puck's funeral? I'll eat a lot at that one. (laughs) (laughs) I wait the day. I wait the day. Is Emerald Lugosi dead? Is that what we're all eating? Lugosi. Not the chef. (laughs) The vampire. Not the actor either. The vampire. The real one that the actor is based on. Max Shrek Lugosi. Nosferosi. (laughs) With a Jewish population in 1946 of 168,000 in Los Angeles, there was a lot of us to go around. North Hollywood and Panorama City took in a huge surge of new Jewish residents. Beautiful areas. (laughs) At the time. Sure. Well, the... Like, where else could they go? You're yelling at me? <laughs> I'm, I'm very sick. Are you defending Panorama City? I don't know why. I feel an obligation to protect the valley anytime you come after it. Even if it's, it's something f- I hate, like Silmar. The valley even started getting developed by Jewish developers like S. Mark Taper, Louis H. Boyer, Lawrence Weinberg, Nathan Chappelle, no relation, and a guy named Eli Brode. By 1950, there were 22,000 Jewish families living in the valley. There were other Jewish architects working around the city like Richard Neutra, who the guy who did the new Hollow Records building right. we talked about last time, Peter Laszlo and Frank Gehry. A lot of Jewish people from Boyle Heights also moved to the west side of LA to the Pico Robertson area, which still has a strong Jewish community, yeah. and to Fairfax, which has less of a Jewish community today than it used to. But Cantrus is there. Shut up, you're stepping on my toes. Now who can't tango? <laughs> tango, Greg. You're not tangoing. The move to Fairfax, well, we're going to talk about it right now. The move to Fairfax had started earlier, and by the 40s there were already four temples there, which is why in 1941, Cantors and Boyle Heights opened up a second location there which moved to where it is now in 1953 in that building. The Boyle Heights Cantors closed in 1948 but this one is obviously still there. We're there right we're now. We're going to go exactly. We're going to go right now. <laughs> I, need, I need a taco. And that's where I go. And that's where I go. I need celery soda and a taco. With all the Jewish people in the valley and on the west side they were still divided by the mountains which is, this was interesting to me which is why there's so many Jewish institutions connecting the two areas inside the Sepulveda Pass like the Skirball Center, the American Jewish University and Stephen S. Weiss. Wow, I didn't know that. I know. So every time you go through there, you're being converted. 
Jewish life spread out from Boyle Heights into the rest of LA and it became a diaspora with a few mostly disconnected pockets around the city and in 1951 the Jewish population was at 330,000 but with all that physical divide also came an ideological divide most of the new Jewish residents in the 50s had come to the city post World War 1 I mean post World War 2 mm-hmm. which one's which which one came first which one did Hitler have the mustache for he didn't have it for both <laughs> one of them he just got shot which one was that which when did Hitler get shot but didn't die so since they were new, relatively new to the city, they had no connection to Boyle Heights, and they moved straight into the west side yeah. or to the valley. And then the ones who had lived in Boyle Heights before the war but moved away, they kind of turned their backs on their working class, poorer roots yeah. on the east side. That's then, what moving up feels like. <laughs> moving on up, and I'm not looking back. <laughs> then the Jews who stayed in Boyle Heights started to resent the ones in the valley and the west side because of that and because they were better off than them. Yeah. Then the blacklist communist scare happened, and the west side and valley Jews rejected the radicalism and communist leanings of the community in Boyle Heights because they didn't want to get involved with any of that. So it split them into sort of the radicals on the East and the conservatives on the West. But as for Jewish life in Boyle Heights itself, by the late 50s, it was pretty much done. By 1960, only 4% of LA's Jewish population lived in Boyle Heights. And in 1994, there were only eight Jewish people there. The The original eight. The original, they're still there. Alive. They would not give up. (laughs) Alive and stronger than ever. Still catching bandits. (laughs) (laughs) The transition here in 1994 was solidified by the renaming that year of Brooklyn Avenue to Cesar Chavez Mm -hmm. Avenue. And no one could stop them. Except Tiburcio Vasquez, (laughs) robber of street names. (laughs) The last Jewish person to be born and raised in Boyle Heights was Eddie Goldstein, who married into a Mexican family and apparently spoke with a strong Mexican-American accent. Pretty cool. Uh, He died in 2013 at age 79. There's still some lettering and Jewish imagery on a lot of the storefronts there. Home of Peace Cemetery still gets a about 100 burials a year. But the Mount Zion Cemetery is in serious state of neglect. It's looked after by Home of Peace and the Jewish Federation, but it's not technically owned by anybody, so it hasn't had a burial in years, and most of its tombstones have been knocked over and, like, looted. In 2013, they got a $250,000 donation from a local entrepreneur named Shlomo Rechnitz. That's not real. And that, uh, it's an anagram for boys that Billy threw up. <laughs> Survivors of Billy! And then the rest of the community pitched in after that and gave an extra 50000 so we'll see what that gets oh, turned cool. into. Okay. Lots of the old temples are now churches, so you'll see like Jewish stars on yeah, that and stuff. Yeah. Um, I was driving through the other day, I'm like, that's weird. This is also <laughs> weird. That's weird. But the Breed Street Shul, the centerpiece of Jewish Boyle Heights, it still stands, sort of. It got kind of abandoned after most of the community left, and in the 70s it became a hangout for gangs, and in the 80s it got all tagged up inside, and it was, it's really falling apart. Then it got damaged in the 1987 Whittier Narrows earthquake, and in 1992 it closed down officially. It was being looked after by the Jewish Historical Society of Southern California who petitioned for it to get historical protection. In 1998, it was visited by current president, first lady, Hillary Clinton as part of that. And then in 1999, they started the Breed Street Shul Project to raise money to start the restoration process that in the year 2000 led to a Jewish and Latino alliance that raised money to turn it into the Boyle Heights Cultural Museum and Community Center. I'd high five you, but you're sick and I don't want to go near you, but we would, we would high five right now oh, over that's that. That's another stereotype. In 2001, it was successful put on the National Register of Historic Places and in 2011 the smaller part of it from 1915 reopened as that community center. It's the last remaining of the 30 synagogues throughout Boyle Heights and City Terrace so the Jewish days in Boyle Heights are over for now but anti-Semites fear not because LA still has the fourth biggest Jewish community in the world behind Tel Aviv, New York and Jerusalem New York City that is. Probably all of New York. We're about 6% of the city's population so there's still plenty of us for you to hate. (laughs) 
That's enough. Anything over five. Uh, very interesting. White podcast. <laughs> white podcast. I'm so glad that the water was almost in your mouth when you started screaming it. <laughs> oh, by the way, white podcast. What were his last words? We want to put it on his tombstone <laughs> in the Jewish cemetery. What were they, Greg? Greg, tell us. Well, <laughs> he said a lot of really nice stuff. Was it ride or die? <laughs> was it YOLO? He used to say that a lot. He lived like he died. Once. <laughs> One time only. Everything you said right now makes a lot of sense because I already wrote it in my report. Let's go through it. America is seen as a melting pot country and Los Angeles is seen as... More like a tossed salad and scrambled eggs. Scrambled eggs. Oh, yeah, All over f- the place. This is a Fraser's podcast, by the way. Fraser podcast! Yeah, Fraser podcast! <laughs> They're calling again! In Los Angeles... I don't know what to do with all these Jews... <laughs> And Mexicans. <laughs> That's the song, right? That's what's the implications That's that are being made. That's the song for white podcast. <laughs> it's also a Fraser podcast for some reason. Double duty. We don't have that much free time. <laughs> Crime everything in one. Yeah, America is a melting pot country. That's what everyone keeps saying. Which I don't know if that's true or not. not gotten, I mean, people say that, but they don't like it. They say that and like no, but in a bad thing. They don't want the melting pot. We don't want it to melt. We want white rice. <laughs> we want a white rice pot. But no rice. That's too ethnic. White bread. Cottage cheese. White, white cottage bread. Cottage white bread. White bread. <laughs> 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 Makes you wonder. <laughs> California as the United States was still a fresh 60-year-old baby at the turn of the century, although California, as we have learned, had been Mexico previously, a strong case mm-hmm. for we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Mm-hmm. But after that point, <laughs> a border had to be crossed to get to Los Angeles. So, okay, we you crossed the border. Cross the border. It was always burning. That's fine. Um, Cut print. <laughs> okay, so you crossed the border. Now what? The many Mexicans who came set themselves up in Sonora Town, which is around the old plaza in downtown, which eventually became Chinatown, because of radically discriminatory housing policies like you talked about non-white ethnic groups who were the lowest of the income brackets had to slum it up in the slums which seemed to start around slum 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 <laughs> so there was like the Sonora Town the Old Plaza and then there was a Macy Street District which if you remember that's where the bubonic plague broke out in the 20s bubonic bubonic uh, with the bubos bubos yeah <laughs> what, how were we supposed to say it yeah, I think it's supposed to be pronounced bubos but we kept calling it bubos <laughs> which is Bobo. so much cuter it's so oh god I hope I catch it so there's Macy Street District there's Chavez Ravine which is another slum. Well, a river oh, ran... That's a nice way to refer to a Jewish cemetery. Well, the river ran through the slums because on the other end of that, there was the flats. It goes back to, I believe, 1905 and it was occupied mainly by the Russians and Mexicans and by 1910, a particular part of the flats, specifically Utah Street, was deemed by the Housing Commission to be the worst slum not only in Los Angeles, but the worst slum west of the Mississippi. <laughs> a proud title. Proud title. And this consideration of it being the worst slum was not fixed in 1910. People in the 30s were still calling it the worst slum in America. <laughs> Boyle Heights geographically and socially could be split into two very distinct parts, the flats and the heights. Everything that's not the flats is the heights, basically. At the very end of the- Wait, 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 wait. Go on. Sure, I have NyQuil on the brain, but you're telling me what? The heights is better? How? I don't understand. Like Brooklyn Heights, like it used to be called, right? <laughs> At the early years of the 20th century, there was about 60,000 blue-collar workers living in between the areas of Elysian Park to Washington Boulevard, bounded by Alameda Street on the west and Boyle Avenue on the east, as you talked about. And of that era, the newer and thus poorer immigrants coming to Los Angeles settled in the flats. The heights, from what I understand, was everything surrounding the flats where the houses were. So you lived in the slums or you didn't. If you didn't, then you had it made. The heights were not extravagant, but reasonable was better than the flats. Mm-hmm. Workmen, as you said, helped build the line itself mm-hmm. in about the 1880s 
in the midst of a uh, line. Yeah, he helped build the first street line and was later crucial in creating the fourth street car line extending through Boyle Heights on Cumming Street, which were operated by mule teams once every hour. In 1909, the division between the working class people on the east side of town and the middle class people on the west side of town was solidified when a pioneer city ordinance was set, making, like you said, the west side of Los Angeles exclusively reserved for residential land use. Mm-hmm. The first and for amusement. Yeah, <laughs> for giggles. <laughs> this was a heavy blow in the racial segregation of land use. The middle class could live in the residential areas that were clean. The impoverished working class clearly had to live amongst them in the work. flats. Yeah, put them in the flats. A lot of people like Charles Watts, who owned Watts, was trying to boost Watts for the Mexican people to move to, but that didn't happen until the 20s. And he had these big, cheap plots of land, but no one was moving because there was no way to get over there, really. Watts plots. In the 19-teens, there was a surge in Mexican population due to the strife in Mexico because of the revolution. So people were coming here, but they are all sort of like bottlenecking at Sonora Town and kind of like eventually like going to the flats. It was the most familiar name they saw. Yeah, like, oh, it's kind of Spanish. Everyone <laughs> told me to come here. I don't know what town means, but... In the 20s, there was 27 interurban routes and over a 1,000 miles of tangled up lines through the city. The red cars carried passengers all over the city while Huntington himself was designing a line that went on the east side of town, like you said, extending to Boyle Heights and Maravilla. Interurban railway systems helped to disperse the different ethnic communities and at the same time they helped introduce other ethnic groups to Boyle Heights. And as the Jewish and Russian communities moved out, the Mexican community moved in. One book called it a massive exodus of Mexicans from the plaza to the east side. All they needed was a ride. <laughs> they hitched a ride with Moses <laughs> splitting the LA River. He just opened it up so we're just gonna fall off. The DS commandment? <laughs> Can you say 10 in Spanish? Why can't it? What? Nueve, diez, once, once. Yeah, that's it. I always start with nine. There's new commandments. Oh, good. <laughs> What's 12? The 12 commandments? I can't have a cat. <laughs> Uh, okay, the line itself offered jobs to many unskilled laborers from Mexico and gave them opportunity to earn a living in Los Angeles. They didn't make a great deal of money, but they were offered free transportation and free company housing for the workers and their families. So I hope, I mean, unskilled Mexican laborers made 25 cents less than other nationalities, but they're still making something when they came here. Even other minority nationalities? Yeah, they wow. were, I think, the lowest of those. Great. Um, great. The 1930s had yet another giant boost in population. There was also an industrial expansion. Nearly 600,000 people flocked to LA during the Depression looking for work, and many other of them ended up on the east side or the south sides of town where all the industry was because that's where it was kept racially and socially it was all kept in the bad side of town. We said this in the last episode, but so many gaps are being filled in of like, why is that there? Why is that Yeah, why there? is that? Why was it like this? Oh, because with this other thing we talked about in another episode. <laughs> because of Billy the Alligator. I get it. <laughs> Billy did it. Billy was deciding everything. Billy did it. Immigrants escaping impoverished or war-torn countries sought to clutch onto the American dream of prosperity and decided LA would be the place for that. In the 30s, though, there was a small hiccup in the Mexican population in Los Angeles when more than 11,000 Mexican immigrants who were recruited to work in the country were deported to Mexico from Los Angeles. Oh, but a year before that, in 1930, Olvera Street was opened after being renovated (laughs) and restored because we love Mexican culture so much. Wait, how many did they deport? 11,000. What? Yeah. That's like a population. Yeah, that's a population, but there were 600,000 immigrants of all different countries coming here at the same time <laughs> in the 30s. In 1931, they were all being repatriated and sent back to Mexico, and in 19, a year before what a that. Nice term. I know. And then in 1930, Alvaro Street. <laughs> and to remind you, the woman behind this was Christine Sterling, the same woman who had gone to create a darling little China city, which was inspired by the Orient, which had no <laughs> input from the Chinese community, but we love Asian culture. Up to this point, the flats were predominantly Molokan Russians, which was a dissenting faction of 
spiritual Christians. Yeah, I kept reading about yeah, what and those Russian. were. Yeah. yeah, I was like, but are they Jewish? Are you <laughs> reading about these people? Are they Jewish? I read the term Russian Jewish, but I think it was something different. Molokan Russians were a dissenting faction of spiritual Christians from Russia who came to America to flee persecution from the Tsarist government. They were escaping forced recruitment during the Russo-Japanese War of the early 20th century, which I did not look into. They all ended up in the flats. So the flats for the first, I think, 20 years of the 20th century were mostly Russian. At the end of the 30s, a strong sense of activism began to rise in the Mexican community of Boyle Heights and East LA. I'm sure it was there all along, but in 1939, Russian, Jewish, and Mexican women who worked and lived in Boyle Heights participated in the California Sanitary Canning Strike, which was the first successful food processing strike of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO. My favorite passage about the strike was, it was the height of peach season. <laughs> no! No, not what How am I going to eat my fruit cocktails? 400 of the 430... In the heights. <laughs> in the heights is how you're going to do it. 400 of the 430 workers protested in record heat and were successful in getting better wages and better working conditions. That same year, the first national... The rest were canned. That same year, the first National Latino Civil Rights Assembly, the Al Congreso, convened in East LA with over a thousand delegates. They met to come up with solutions to end segregation in schools and the workplace and in housing areas and ideas on how to fight deportation. As you'll see, and as you know from our March Madness episode, East LA and Boyle Heights have had a long tradition of community activism. By the 40s, though, Mexican-Americans outshined all the other ethnic groups population-wise and were becoming the largest minority group in Los Angeles. Part of it was the Bacero program, which was a work program which offered limited citizenship to Mexican workers, but the war effort also drew in a lot of people to work here as well. So the Mexican community had work and had money, and they were looking for central adjacent locations to live, and Boyle Heights became the place. So the 40s and 50s in Boyle Heights were really the peak melting pot years. Many people recall this era before Pearl Harbor. I've just seen a lot of Japanese families everywhere. Yeah, yeah a, a lot, lot of, of Japanese, big Japanese community. After which, World War II, after they couldn't go back to Little Tokyo. Yeah, well, it was before that, too. Uh, 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 yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Many Japanese families left San Francisco after the 1906 earthquake and they came south. A majority of that population settled on Terminal Island, as we learned in the whatever episode that was, <laughs> podcast that time forgot. And learn about what's on the tip of Terminal Island in our last episode. Oh my god. I like that every episode now is a commercial for other episodes. Yeah. Well, we gotta promote ourselves somehow. Because nobody else will. Sorry, everybody who helped promote us. A lot of them ended up in Terminal Island, a lot of them ended up in Little Tokyo, but when space became scarce in the 20s, they followed First Street East and ended up in Boyle Heights and set up shop there. After Pearl Harbor, they were all detained along with the lawful residents of Terminal Island. There are stories of Boyle Heights residents securing the property of their Japanese neighbors while they were detained. They weren't being released from holding caps until 1946 and when they came back to Boyle Heights along with all the other servicemen returning from the war, whatever war where Hitler died, there was a huge housing surge. Is this the one where he died? He was a zombie in World War II, right? (laughs) He was a vampire the whole time. He was Nosferatu. (laughs) Hitler Nosferatu. Yeah, there was a huge housing surge because everybody was coming back. Not only the servicemen who were coming returning from the war but all the people who were held illegally mm-hmm. basically coming to wherever they could afford housing and stuff and Boyle Heights didn't have a lot of space after this there was a housing surge getting place in Boyle Heights was difficult because post-war Boyle Heights was where a lot of Mexicans chose to plant their feet the 40s was a decade of huge changes in Boyle Heights in 1942 the flats were raised and three housing projects were created for low-income families there's a Liso village at 1401 East 1st Street which had 802 units created by the Bashford and Barlow firm which also created a beautiful housing project in Baldwin Hills Pico Gardens, which was at 500 Pecan Street. 200 Pecan Street. Pecan? Yeah. Like the nut? Yeah, like the nut. Mm. 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 
Ooh, this podcast tastes good. <laughs> and they could hold 250 families, separate families, which had a preference for military families or those working in the war industry, as did Aliso Village. And then there was Estrada Court at 3232 Estrada Street, which had 200 units. All three of these... Is Eric Estrada themed? Yeah, no, it's it's all chips. It's all California Highway Patrol themed. All three of these projects would go on to spawn some of the most vicious street kings in Los Angeles history. Primera Flats, Primera, because Aliso Street was on First Street. Mm-hmm. Cuatro Frats, because they... <laughs> Were they wait, let me guess. Because uh, there were four of them. Because Pico Gardens was on 4th Street. And then the rest of them. Big Hazard, AV Fellas, AV Rockers, and the rest. <laughs> By the 70s, Bring them all bring out. Bring them all out. How do they get along? Turf War. Turf War. <laughs> Everyone's crossing everybody out. <laughs> By the 70s, the projects fell into disrepair and gangs grew from that mess. Another <laughs> huge affair in Boyle Heights was the construction of the San Bernardino Freeway, the 10, running through Elisa Street to 1st Street. Yeah. And in doing that, displacing over 10,000 people. Like, sliced up the whole neighborhood. Boy, boy we shouldn't do that again except we need to connect to Santa Ana Freeway the 101 which ran from Aliso Street to Soto Street and in about 20 years in the 60s we're going to need everything between 6th Street to Boyle Street we're just going to cut through Hollenbeck Park so we can construct the Golden State Freeway the 5 and yes that's a tangled mess of concrete and displacement but we're going to need to build an East LA interchange to connect all of these damn freeways <laughs> oh oh and we're also going to need to connect the Pomona Freeway the 60 to that interchange from 3rd to Downey okay thanks oh by the way there are no freeways that can get you directly to Beverly Hills or even close to the Sunset Strip or West Hollywood. But oh boy, is Boyle Heights and East LA going to get six freeways running through it? Hey, it was residential. Overall, the freeways took up 10% of the land. The freeways from, needed somewhere to live too. Were there going to be overpass? Uh, over we gonna the, make, uh, we're going to make it easy to get to anywhere on the west side of Los Angeles? <laughs> no, no, no. We're going to make it work for it. Overall, the freeways took up 10% of the land from Boyle Heights. Hollenbeck Park, which is a truly beautiful park with a lagoon in Boyle Heights surrounded by Victorian and Craftsman Helms. By the way, just down the street from the haunted Linda Visa Hospital, which we talked about in this second creepy Christmas haunted Hanukkah. <laughs> Advertisements. A portion of Hollenbeck Park was cut down to build a freeway mm. to go through it. I never noticed this in person, but I did see a photo. There's a freeway overpass that goes over the lagoon. Uh, who cares? Poor people only use parks for drugs, right? <laughs> 1946, during the post-war communism socialism scare that clipped the Chavez Ravine housing project in the bud, Boyle Heights residents organized to oppose the Housing Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, during the hearings in LA. This community activism and social awareness continued through the 40s when there was a multiracial coalition, the Community Service Organization of the CSO, that all came together, as you mentioned, to help elect local barrio boy Edward R. Roybal to the LA City Council, who was the first Mexican-American to do so in the 20th century. Roybal represented the 9th District, which included Boyle Heights, Bunker Hill, Civic Center, Chinatown, Little Tokyo, and Central Avenue. And he, all freeways. And all He, he represented freeway, the 60 freeway. Freeway power! <laughs> also, it's a freeway podcast. Roybal was born in... to do with all those offerings. They're colliding again. Roybal was born in New Mexico, but raised in Los Angeles and served until 1993. I do believe that's 13 terms. He hit a particular... Oh, I don't understand the term when yeah, I, used to, I used to think you could only do four. And I, that was the golden age. I don't know. Roybal hit a particular stride in the 60s during the Chicano movement. In 1967, Roybal authored the first bilingual education bill to provide local school districts assistance with special bilingual teaching mm-hmm. programs. In 68, with the goal of improving educational housing and employment opportunities for Spanish-speaking U.S. citizens, he worked to establish the Cabinet Committee on Opportunities for... Of Caligari. Sp- of Calgary. You go to sleep and then you wake up and you speak Spanish. <laughs> for Spanish-speaking people, that's what I was getting to. His entire career, Roybal worked to protect the rights of minorities, the elderly, and the physically challenged. His ability to inspire the many ethnic groups to assemble for his cause not only inspired Mayor Tom Bradley, the first black mayor of L.A., Roybal also went on to show the path to the first black president of the United States, Barack Obama. Who? Who? I've heard of him. Oh, that's the guy that Trump keeps wanting us to forget. <laughs> 
That's who it is. It worked, you know, it worked, it, for, worked. it worked for a second. I remember him now. He's he just, the one who, uh, he was on Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. That's him. That's the guy, the comedian, Barack Obama. Comedian Barack Obama. Comedian Barack Obama. Come on, he is pretty funny, though. This is also a Barack Obama. This is also a Barack Obama podcast. Barack podcast. Barack Otaka. Barack podcast sounds like an Irish person. From the 1960s to the 80s, Boyle Heights continue. Are we sure he's not Irish? I want to see that birth certificate. <laughs> that whole thing was it president truth teller was it oracle president donald trump oracle. was it the elder <laughs> white president <laughs> we just went from reagan to trump that i don't remember anything in between yeah, all those black presidents in between <laughs> reagan and trump <laughs> that a conga line of black presidents that we had <laughs> between the 60s and the 80s Boyle heights continued to get more and more latino dominant with other ethnic groups slipping out to other areas the activism slipping con- out you <laughs> like we were a big health officer we gotta go we <laughs> gotta not go. looking koreatown's got a lot of cool stuff in it there's a canters and fair <laughs> we gotta, we gotta go. Bring Moses. He can split the river. It'll cut off 10 minutes. Oh, these Latinos want us to join the baseball thing. We don't want to play. They say they need more to play. They say they want to outfield. I don't want to play. We only have one good player. <laughs> He's on the Dodgers. He's on the Dodgers already. <laughs> the activism continued strong through the 60s, through Lincoln Heights and East LA blowouts and walkouts of the 60s. Chicano Moratorium in 1970. That happened mm-hmm. in East LA, north of Boyle Heights and at Laguna Park. Although not in Boyle Heights, the social activism the Chicano movement was felt through all of the east side of LA. Through the 1950s, again, taking Huac to task about anti-socialist pushback. When he's organized pushed for the deportation of the city's foreign-born populations. The Boyle Heights Jewish and Mexican-American residents established the Eastside branch of the LA Committee for the Protection of the Foreign-Born. They were crucial in fighting anti-communist organizations who were against civil rights groups and immigrants. In the 70s, a lot of people remember Boyle Heights as being remembered for the gang activity, drugs, and an unbeatably high homicide rate in the 70s. High murder rate or not, by 1990, the population of Boyle Heights was still over 94,000 people, and 94% of that was Latino. <laughs> Fittingly, like you said already, Brooklyn Avenue was changed to Cesar Chavez Avenue mm-hmm. who was a labor leader. I said that so condescendingly. Labor, <laughs> a labor leader. Labor, ugh. Ugh, a union leader, an ugh, activist. Oh, God. God. Does he even eat luau's for breakfast? Uh-huh. The housing projects Aliso Village and Pico Gardens were torn down in the 90s and replaced with the new urbanist projects and the Pueblo de Sol projects. Still crimey though. <laughs> the Estrada Courts projects was not torn down and still stands to this day and is more recognized for the murals and preservation efforts. As of 2000, Boyle Heights remains 94% Latino with a very small percentage of Asian Americans, 2.3%. The population now, I believe, is over 82,000 people. In 2009, the MTA opened the Gold Line East Side extension that ran through Boyle Heights and into East LA with a stop at the historic Mariachi Plaza that continues until mm-hmm. Atlantic Boulevard, which is almost Montebello. That's where we bought Tejuino that one time. Mm, remember that mm. Sunday night? Still, anyone ever know what Tejuino is? It's lemonade mixed with coffee. <laughs> mixed with bleach <laughs> and some sort of dirt. When you want your sinuses to clear and your eyes to water. Tejuino. <laughs> the train, apparently I didn't know they were named names. I thought they just had colors. But mm, the uh, one... some, Greg's naming names now. I thought he learned something. <laughs> I'm not a name, I'm a color, which is a Rudy Guthrie song. <laughs> the train that runs through Will Heights is named after Edward Roybal. The Gold Line extension is not only very necessary necessary and convenient. Symbolically, it's important because it connects Boyle Heights with the further eastern neighborhoods to the rest of the city. It connects all these parts. It's like an olive branch. For all those people who felt excluded from the city, here's this light rail that will bring you into downtown. <laughs> here's a light rail. Here's a light rail. But with bridges comes invasions. As of last year, the fight between the aggressive activists of Boyle Heights and the casual colonists that are gentrifying that area heated up. This isn't just scumbag slumlords who want to raise the rent on low-income mm-hmm. families. It's also upscale artist spaces that mm-hmm. want to rent cheap and are either unknowingly or unconcerned about the effects that has on the community. Mm-hmm. The olive branch had ants on it. Mm, Red ants. With wonderful hair. 
uh, I cannot wait for you to hear the sound of your voice when you go back and listen to this because it is deep, beautiful and invading <laughs> uh, so slowly but with purpose. Silver Lake has always been slightly bourgeois and comrade clothing, but within the last 10 years, it's gone full upscale and taken Echo Park with it. After Echo Park was almost completely gentrified, there are, st- I mean, there are still patches of old except Echo for Park. One house. Except for one house that refuses to go. <laughs> it's just full of crimes. There's a lot of old Echo Park up by the lake which refuses to be gentrified. And then after Echo Park came downtown, the Arch District, they were gentrified. So if you follow this pattern, the pattern, obviously, it's two boil heights across the river. That was next. But community <laughs> activists, like, organizations... Designer footprints. <laughs> Ants follow the line, don't they? There are community <laughs> activist organizations like Defend Boyle Heights and the East LA Brown they, Berets. They should, they should do just a big line of chalk yeah. <laughs> around big, Boyle Heights. It's almost like when witches want to do something and they cover, like, they just do symbiotic. It's just, like, street art covered. Yeah. Like, I want to make fun of street art, but I, I like so much of I, it. I just, I can't, I, because I'm Banksy. How can I make fun of what I am? Oh Stop no! Stop saying This is the it. Banksy cast, <laughs> and I don't know what to do with all this secret identity. <laughs> I'm taking again. again. Oh, <laughs> on it, guys. We're on it. Good night. <laughs> Boyle, oh my God! Well, like I was saying, there's organizations like Defend Boyle Heights and the East LA Brown Berets that have been helping preserve low-income housing and fight to preserve their culture in Boyle Heights. As displayed in this episode, Boyle Heights is one of the most culturally rich parts of Los Angeles, and spaces should go to Latino-owned businesses or Japanese or Jewish or Russian, some culture that appreciates the historical <laughs> significance of that area. The fight that has been the most visible and maybe the most recent has been for gallery space in Boyle Heights. Yeah. There was a huge protest last October when the Beverly Hills run United Talents Agency had an officially opened this thing called Artist Space, which was a pseudo gallery in an old manufacturing building in Boyle Heights. And it had an exhibit from photographer Larry Clock, who did that movie Kids, which I saw when I was way too young. <laughs> when you were the titular kid. Yeah, then when I was one of the kids. The community hit the streets with signs reading, Keep Beverly Hills out of Boyle Heights. They also came up with these fake eviction notices written in Spanish for the United Talent Agency. <laughs> Protesters are chanting, hey, hey, ho, ho, gentrifiers have got to go, which is so catchy. <laughs> Some people don't understand the hard line these activists decided to take, but there's a clear pattern going on. And also, there are not so subtle language indicators that the artists use, which kind of, I was reading an article and I was like baffled. Like One article has pointed out that people have started referring to Boyle Heights as the flats again. Weird. What happened to the flats? Where did they go? Did they get raised to? There are quotes taken the from- flats are even lower. Subterranean flats. There are quotes- <laughs> I love that band. I love that Bob Dylan song. <laughs> My voice does sound good. I sound like Bob Dylan. You sound a little bit like Bob Dylan. <laughs> Modern day Bob Dylan. Yeah. There are quotes <laughs> taken from the, that's Leonard Cohen. There are quotes taken from the New York Times articles about downtown Los Angeles where artists are saying this stuff about Boyle Heights. It's mainly tacos and stray dogs and really nice people. They called it desolate. They said it was a rough and tumble streetscape. And yeah, it might be true, but it's their desolate rough and tumble streetscape. Since that very visible protest, there has been some acts of vandalism made against these galleries in Boyle Heights, and many Chicano activist groups support this, as they probably should, but police are looking into some of these acts of vandalism as being hate crimes, because the victims are saying the perpetrators are attacking what they view as white art. I can't act like all these new businesses that came into Echo Park are bad, but I definitely attest to the cost of living. Oh, I live in Echo Park. Sorry, I should have addressed that. Don't let them know. I can't act like all the new businesses that came into Echo Park are bad, but I can definitely attest to the cost of living increases. People I knew growing up have to move to more low-income areas. There are more white people, a ridiculous (laughs) overabundance of galleries and coffee shops, and so (laughs) many people walking dogs at all hours of the night. My favorite mural was painted over so someone can paint a mural of Darby Crash from the Germs. And yeah, I like the Germs, but he grew up in Santa Monica. That's whitewashing bull honky. I don't understand. Like, just getting rid of old... What was the mural of before? It was a guy breaking out of chains. According to a puff. DVD I found uh, 
Uh, the feature of Boyle Heights is the intersection of the First and Chicago Street, which there's a new police station, there's a renovated city hall, and the Benjamin Franklin Library, which is like you told me the first LAPL library. I think it existed separately, but then when LAPL started, like grabbing, we have the central, and then we're gonna have branches. They absorbed that first because they're number one. Yeah, that's what you're saying. The destination. That's what their foam fingers say. At least when you walk in. <laughs> that's what all the librarians are forced to say when you come yeah. in. We are number one. What Be quiet. <laughs> Shut your mouth. Can okay. You uh, from my re- shaft cast now. I don't know what to do with all that shaft. <laughs> It's an entirely After Dark podcast. <laughs> From my reading, though, the essence of Boyle Heights public space... It's can, a puff film. One piece is puffed in particular. <laughs> the essence of Boyle Heights public space... Please cut that up before I talk about the essence of Boyle Heights. The essence of Boyle Heights public space could be found in two places. One is Mariachi Square on First Street, where you and I, yes, got the Tewino that night. <laughs> but remember, that was a happening spot for a Sunday night. Remember, we were walking yeah, around. There, there was a band. There was a market, a, a little yes. outdoor marketplace selling Tewino. Yeah, and a Sunday night. It was, it was all like almost like eight or nine o'clock mariachi bands used to go there since the 30s and mm. would play in hopes of getting hired by someone there's a plan within the last five years of renovating mariachi plaza so it can be like there can be shops around there but the community backlash was enough to at least delay it if not completely deter it but this is a main artery not only to the past of boil heights but of the also rich latino culture like it's a gateway point to the east side of los angeles once you punch mariachi plaza you know that you're <laughs> like, not oh, going back it's gonna be a lot of stuff in spanish for a while <laughs> the other thing main main essence of boil heights is located at what is considered to be the edge of boil heights evergreen cemetery it's the oldest and one of the largest cemeteries in the city. It was opened in 1877 near First and Lorena Street. The corner of the land is owned by Alley County. It's where I attended the funeral for the unclaimed body to the mm-hmm. Alley City Morgue. Listen to the second Creepy Christmas on Hanukkah. Plugs. Plugs. What's special about Evergreen Terrace is that it didn't discriminate wholly about race or denomination the people who were to be buried there. Latino, Japanese, Chinese, Russian, African American, and white people were buried there. Yeah, it should be noted that they are segregated by ethnicity, but they're all <laughs> buried there. Again, it's all one. Are they, it, is it really segregated by ethnicity? That's what I read somewhere. I haven't investigated myself but I, how can that's weird I, are the tombstones different colors yeah they're also uh yeah i'm glad i took the nyquil but it's somehow affecting your brain i swear you're coughing your nyquil brain into me charlotta bass and biddy mason who oh. we talked about are buried at evergreen it's a beautiful wow. testament it really is it's a beautiful testament to the diversity of los angeles and it's in boyle heights and mm-hmm. it's a good representation of boyle heights itself not only city but this community where all this it really is the la's lower east side yeah i don't know what that is <laughs> Um, I'll show you my Lower East Side. I, it's puffed. I don't listen to the Bowery Boys, so I don't know what any of this stuff is. Oh, by the way, La Paria on Cesar Chavez is delicious Mexican food. And the Oromisan on First Street is a great place. The last Japanese restaurant in Boyle Heights. KCT did an article on them. So me and my friend Edric and Cesar and I went. It's very, very good. And it feels like... Cesar I'm, Chavez. Cesar Chavez. My friend Cesar Chavez, he wrote me a letter about going to Oromisan. <laughs> you want to go get Japanese food <laughs> with Edric? <laughs> you know Edric, your friend? You know the new Edric you're looking for? <laughs> it's a really nice place and it feels like you're eating in someone's kitchen. I wanted to end on that some recommendations oh. for Boyle Heights I actually have a, a postscript huh, here I thought I was going to end this thing I thought I was a big closer Mm-mm. Greg why don't you step in but encore not for Greg I have so much more to add <laughs> it kept coming up the the unions between all the different groups and how much of a Lower East Side it was if you only knew what that meant yeah. it's good to learn about a union between specifically Jewish and Latino cultures that had a shared home base at a certain point especially since one of them is now being demonized in the same way that the other one had to deal with around the same time we were talking about. Uh It's also worth knowing that a lot of Latinos have Jewish roots because of the conversos in Spain who converted to Catholicism to escape the Inquisition. A lot of Latinos are now rediscovering that heritage and 
they kind of want the Breed Street Shul to be a safe place for that and also oh, wow. for any gringo Jews who might want to return to Boyle Heights someday. In 2009, they had Fiesta Shalom. They had it there to celebrate Israel's 61st anniversary with 6,000 Jews and Latinos coming together and acknowledging that shared history in Boyle Heights. Here's what we'll talk about the Jewish conspiracy. I'll spill the beans. <laughs> Finally. This is what I think, at least. This is my white podcast. <laughs> the reason Jewish people have had influence over the years isn't just because of our dealings with the Illuminati and the lizard people, but because there's a good number of us and being politically engaged and voting is a big part of the community, which is something we're seeing a lot more of in the Latino community, yeah. which is good because it's like a secret weapon that if more people stay active like they are now, then things can change for the better. Yeah. Like if numbers are going up amongst Latino voters and that's only going to make good changes happen. Yeah, definitely. And I was also reading that multicultural unions like this that were pretty strong in the past in the city were purposely forgotten. Like no one really talks about these sorts of unions because yeah. that was one of the goals of McCarthy during the anti-communist days to like wipe Squash that legacy out, yeah. of the radical left yeah. in people's memory. And that lasted. And also because people want to try to tidy up history and attribute progress to one individual racial group. Yeah. But in reality, it wasn't just Jews who made stuff happen. It wasn't just Latinos who made stuff happen or just Japanese Americans or African Americans. It was all of them working together yeah. towards one common goal that got stuff done. And that I think that's the legacy that Boyle Heights is worth remembering yeah, for. Yeah, 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 it's definitely. worth more than just stray dogs and tacos, <laughs> taco shops and the, a faint smell of pastrami. The push to that royal model of getting voted, of like getting all the ethnic groups who feel like they are disenfranchised yeah. because it seems to be that upper class, mostly white population that seems to keep the rest of everybody down. Like if they all united, it like, well, we want this guy from, <laughs> from our neighborhood to yeah. get in city council and then fight for us. That's a beautiful model. <laughs> Well, I'm not voting. <laughs> if, that, if that's what you're saying, I'm not, I'm not changing anything. I'm not getting out of bed on a Tuesday. I don't care if I get a sticker. <laughs> I'll print my own. That's what I'll do. <laughs> I've verted. <I've>, <laughs> All right. Let's go uh, to Boyle Heights. I really want to go to... I want to go back to Mariachi Plaza. I kind of want to, yeah. I want to go to La Paria and get their Mexican coffee. I want to go to Automisan. If it's not right in front of me, then I forget how to say it. I want to go see the shul. Take me to shul. Take me to shul. I also want to go back to Manuel's. I want to eat 10 pounds of burrito right oh, now. God, I want to I want to be sitting in the burrito as I eat it. I want it to be a room that I rent and I have to eat my way out of it. I want to get lost between what's me and what's burrito. <laughs> what's open right now? It's late. I'm so hungry. Do you think they'll serve me pastrami this late? No. <laughs> go to a, bed. It's a daytime food. Go to bed. Sleep now or forever hold your pastrami. Oh, imagine waking up and you had pastrami in your arms for some reason. I would scream. <laughs> You're like the godfather. <laughs> they killed my prized pastrami. I'm going to make you pastrami you can't refuse. I feel like I maybe the same sum up as last week. Now that we push further into this podcast and all these things are starting to tie up, it's very exciting to fill patches of stuff now and be like, yeah. well, this is Boyle Heights. This is specifically Boyle Heights and the Jewish and the Mexican community yeah. there. And now we can do like Santa Anita. Like, like instead of doing <laughs> such broad things, yeah. we can get as specific as we want and still find Yeah, so stories. look forward to that. We're going to get even more specific. Yeah. We're going to talk about one block of LA. <laughs> We're going to talk about the first mayor's buttons. Yeah, it also was interesting like, oh, this guy, this guy, this guy that you know about. Yeah. Well, actually, he was Jewish and he came from this. This thing. This, and then, this, this, yeah, this. everyone's finger it's like in Arrested Development when you <laughs> yeah. see the remnants of yeah. uh, Tobias after he goes blue and you he, like you know where he's been. And you're like, oh yeah, well, he's got his oh, you're saying Jewish people are blue? I mean, yeah, we're sad. We're sad people. <laughs> here's a suggestion that won't make you blue, but it would make us blue. I want to leave if right you now. didn't go to iTunes. Uh, do it before Real Daniel comes back because I'm not talking to Real Daniel right now. I'm talking to who? You're talking to Plugbot. No, <laughs> this has Plugbot. Check me out at this website. <laughs>
Website.website.robot.http colon slash slash website.website. Yeah, leave us a review on iTunes if you have an iPhone. Just go to the podcast app, look for us, leave us some stars, tell your friends. It makes it easier yeah. easier for people to find us. Uh, brag about our language skills to your <laughs> to, friends. Uh, tell people that we talk about sistery and that sort of thing. Um, sistery and alligators. You can also listen to our Fraser podcast and our white podcast. <laughs> white Power podcast. White Power podcast. <laughs> also our podcast about freeways. And our uh, Chips podcast. I don't remember what Chips, we were talking No, about. there was Chips Projects and then Banksy also had, <laughs> I think we also had a Banksy, Banksy podcast. podcast. And Barocco podcast. <laughs> Barocco podcast. The Irish president. And leave us a review on iTunes. We're it would on, help out a lot. We're on Twitter, Ali Meekly. Ali Meekly, I mean. Instagram, LA underscore Meekly. We post pictures every day. Search us on Facebook, Ali Meekly. We have an event coming up. We'll lock down a better date for it. Yeah, but, live show, discussion yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, you'll see us live. If you have any suggestions, comments, or if you would like to be subject of one of our field trip episodes, yes. email us at la.meekly at gmail.com. Our main hub website is lameekly.tumblr.com. We have a podcast archive there. Love us. Love us or leave us, but please don't leave us. Love us or leave us, but pick the first one, please. <laughs> you can choose one and only one. Uh, love us. <laughs> love uh, us or love us? Sincerely, Plugbot. Plugbot. We love you. Goodbye. Uh, I love you. Uh, <laughs> that has been yet another episode of LA Meekly, not knowing what to do with all these tossed salad and podcast names since 2013. And here come the janitors. White podcast. <laughs> Were you guys saying white podcast? No. No. Yes. Mm-hmm.